Did you see this week um, the nativity scene? Oh, I wonder whether we can have the lights down. Um, someone. Because it is quite fun. The nativity scene that uh, Madame Tussauds put, uh, put together. Turn them all off if you like, Jez, because it won't do us any harm. There we go. Um, it was uh, put together as a result of a, a poll of visitors. Um, they uh, asked the visitors to vote who they would like to see uh, play all the different parts. And um, <coughs> the kings were um, Tony Blair, Prince Philip and George W. Bush. The shepherds, well the shepherds were Samuel L. L. Jackson, Hugh Grant and Graham Norton. Who was the angel Gabriel do you think? It was Kylie, that's right. (laughs) Dear old Kylie there. And Joseph and Mary, you may have, uh, have heard about, Joseph and Mary were posh and backs. Uh, the responses, actually, to uh, this stunt from Madame Tussauds were um, uh, very irate from lots of church uh, leaders. Madame Tussauds' defence, actually, um, when accused of irreverence, was that they weren't being irreverent because um, the baby was a plastic doll. At least they maintained that tradition. Actually, if um, you can barely see dear old Jesus there, but uh, he looks very horrified to be in that particular company. Let, I've just blown, him, uh, blown the picture of him up. You see, that? you see that? Is that a little tear? Is that a look of wide-eyed horror? I'm not quite sure. I started wondering, what, what's my response to uh, Madame Tussauds doing a nativity scene. Uh, in many ways, casting uh, famous people as at least some of the characters in the story is not a big deal. I think Kylie as an angel is stretching it a little bit. But um, for me, it wasn't the casting that was the problem. It was actually the um, attitudes, the looks on the faces of the characters. The kings, for instance, show not the slightest sign of bending the knee. The shepherds, actually, especially, seem to be distinctly underawed. And Samuel L. Jackson looks just as fierce as he always does. Hugh Grant is still trying out his uh, foppish charm with that. Can you see the little um, uh, woolly sheep that he's holding under, under his arm? Graham Norton just looks just as frivolously cheeky as ever. But the real shepherds, the real kings, worshipped Jesus, didn't they? I set to thinking how radically true this Madame Tussauds uh, exhibition could have been. Just imagine uh, George W. Bush, Tony Blair and Prince Philip all bowing the knee before that baby Jesus. One day they'll have to. One day even they will have to give an account for everything they've done in their lives. 
and uh, Samuel L. Jackson will not be able to intimidate Jesus Christ, I can assure you, when he faces him. Hugh Grant will not be able to endearingly stutter his way past Christ's searching questions. Graham Norton is not, not going to be making cheeky, risque jokes on the last day when he meets the risen Jesus. And Kylie Minogue is not going to be given wings, she's going to be given a verdict. Either well done, good and faithful servant, or away from me, I never knew you. I realised as I look at it, you see, looked at it, you see, this, this, this two swords tableau reveals the triviality in our modern world of, of people's understanding of what it means to follow Jesus. And it was exactly the same in uh, uh, Isaiah's day. We've seen over the last uh, uh, few weeks as we've uh, looked at these early, early chapters in Isaiah, the, the Isaiah lived in a nation characterised by all sorts of frivolous reli- religiosity without actually a profound commitment to the God of the Bible. It had leaders who trusted far more in their own power than in God. There was, in Isaiah's day, a growing inequality between rich and poor. Woe to those who add house to house, said Isaiah, until there is no more room left in the land. Just as we have, Isaiah lived in a day whose heroes were drunkards and sex objects. Isaiah lived in a day when they redefined what good and evil was. Isaiah's day was very, very like ours. And throughout these uh, chapters of Isaiah, you'll see, uh, uh, you'll know if you've been here for the last few weeks, Isaiah has been promising again and again judgment. The great, mighty Assyrian Empire is going to come upon the nation of Israel and destroy them. And that happened. That is exactly what happened. But throughout these chapters as well, God has been promising hope. It begins in a rather muted way in chapter 1. Come now, let us reason together says uh, God to them. And then it starts to get stronger and build momentum. In chapter 2 in Isaiah, the the, uh, confidence is expressed that in the last days, people from all nations will come and worship the true God. Judah, says Isaiah in chapter 4, will be cut down like a tree because she has disobeyed God. But then Isaiah says, a branch will will shoot up from that stump. In Isaiah uh, uh, chapters 7 to 9 that we looked at last week, that branch is revealed as a child. And no ordinary child at that. A miracle child. Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14 says, A virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. And then Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6 says that he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. What Madame Tussauds represents as a little plastic doll with people sneering. 
and ignoring it. Isaiah says, actually, we'll be the greatest ruler ever. We'll be a miracle child who rules the world. The real kings, the real shepherds, actually glimpsed who this Jesus was. And the early chapters of of, uh, Matthew and Luke assure us they went and they worshipped. So why then, 2,000 years after that event, do we find him still being treated with that casual disrespect? Bible gives us a very clear answer. His rule today is hidden, ambiguous in his life. He actually won his greatest victory. He conquered the powers of evil through a painful, weak, God-forsaken death on the cross. And he rules his world still, for now, in weakness. Just as he revealed himself in his life. One day though, says the New Testament, one day, the power that Isaiah anticipated, the majesty that those kings and shepherds glimpsed, will be revealed in all its fullness to the whole of God's universe and every knee will bow. It's actually that final day that seems to be coming more into focus in Isaiah chapter 11. Up to this moment, you see, Isaiah has told us that the child himself is going to be a a miracle baby. But there hasn't been anything particularly miraculous about his rule. But from now on, that changes. First of all, says Isaiah, at the beginning uh, beginning of uh, chapter 11, we should expect a supernatural king. A king who rules supernaturally. The same child, actually, that Isaiah has been talking up to now, but uh, uh, in verse uh, verse 1 of chapter 11, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, from his roots a branch will bear, bear fruit. This is the child that Isaiah has been alluding to again and again. But now he will be specially spiritually endowed, verse 2. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding. The spirit of counsel and of power. The spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. He is empowered, this king, by God's spirit. For ruling, he has knowledge and understanding. For for war, for battle, he has counsel, that seems to be wisdom in battles, and power, and for spiritual leadership, he has knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he, now, supernaturally empowered, will judge with absolute perfection. Verse 3, he will not judge by what he sees with his eyes, or decide by what he hears with his ears, But with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. He will not judge by his eyes. 
He will judge for the poor and needy and he will utterly defeat the wicked with the breath of his lips, says Isaiah. And this supernatural ruler will then rule with absolute faithfulness. Verse 5. Righteousness will be his belt. Faithfulness the sash round his waist. The king, of course, is Jesus. Couldn't be anyone else, could it? Jesus began his spirit-empowered rule while he walked the earth. In Luke chapter 4, for instance, he declared to them, quoting actually another passage in Isaiah which uh, speaks of, uh, of God's spirit empowering um, God's uh, ruler. Um, Isaiah 61. Uh, Jesus quoted that. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. And then he sat down and said, Today this has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus' war was against the, the spiritual forces of evil. He drove demons out to signify that. Behind every evil power that we see are greater forces of evil and Jesus went for them because he had the spirit of counsel and of power and he knew what he needed to defeat. And his judgments were always for the poor and the needy. He associated with tax collectors and prostitutes, people who were hated by normal society, the people who knew their sin, people who longed for forgiveness. And he loved them. His judgments were always against those who denied their sin, who thought they were uh, okay in their rigid self-righteousness, most especially the Pharisees. Now Jesus began that spirit-empowered rule in his life on earth. But this, this passage looks forward to the, to, the, to the final completion of that spirit-empowered rule, when his uh, rule will be total. His final judgment, says Isaiah, will be with, with total righteousness. He will not just look on the surface, he will look in our hearts. He will see deep within. His final wrath against wickedness will be utter and total. As he said in the Sermon on the Mount, only the poor and needy who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be filled. Only the poor in spirit will receive the kingdom of God. Only the meek will inherit the earth. The self-righteous, the mockers, the thoughtlessly unjust, the irreligious scoffers will hear, away from me, I never knew you. That's the Jesus whom Isaiah looks forward to.
the Jesus who judges our hearts. The Jesus who will judge the heart of each and every one of us here. But Isaiah says more. Not only does he look forward to uh, a supernatural king, he looks forward to um, a supernatural creation in verses 6 to 9. Let me read it all to you. The wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, their young will lie down together, the lion will eat straw like the ox, the infant will play near the hole of the cobra, the young child put his hands into a viper's nest, they will neither harm nor destroy and all my holy mountain for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. It's an extraordinary picture. Predators no longer hunting. Snakes no longer biting. Actually, um, in the news, uh, I think it was earlier this year, there was uh, an interesting um, story and picture. Let me just uh, show it to you if I can of a lioness who adopted a young oryx. Nobody knows why she did it. Actually, it was the first of three that she uh, uh, adopted over, over a period. Even, uh, I think, uh, uh, suckling this one for, for a while and looking, uh, looking after it. Unfortunately, um, she fell asleep a little while after this photograph was taken and a male lion came in and killed that young oryx. We're not there yet. There may be fascinating little uh, anticipations of uh, another world, a world without harming or destroying, but uh, in that Kenyan wildlife park they uh, got a very tough reminder we are not there yet. This is a new creation which is, is supernaturally new. The, uh, the, the, the image gets developed as we go through the book of Isaiah until at the end of, of uh, Isaiah we find Isaiah describing a new heaven and a new earth. A totally new creation created and just as solid as the, uh, as the present one, but new, renewed, with now nothing evil at all in it. And in the New Testament, that, uh, that theme gets taken up and strengthened. In the book of Revelation, for instance, at the end of Revelation, in Revelation 21 and 22, there is a, a new Jerusalem uh, symbolising a, a complete restoration of human society. Jerusalem was supposed to be the perfect human society in the, in the Old Testament and it failed. But God will one day make a new Jerusalem, a new and perfect human society and then it goes on to elaborate it and, and expand the vision to a new creation. Taking uh, images that are found in the Garden of Eden and using them to help us to see God will renew and restore all things. It will be a new place of no fear, a new place of no harm or destruction, uh, a new place 
where the knowledge of God is universal. As uh, uh, it puts it here, the knowledge of the Lord will fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. Or as it says in the, at the end of Revelation, now the dwelling of God is with man and there will be no more tears. Now you may uh, may protest that this is uh, this is this is this is metaphorical. This is this is obviously a metaphor, and that, 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 of course that's uh, that, that's true in one sense. Every time this future reality is described, it's described using um, uh, pictures and images from this world, this creation, as it is now. But that doesn't mean uh, that that doesn't mean to say that. Uh, that it's untrue. Metaphors are always used to point us to something true and real. And consistently the Bible says that there is a new creation. Every bit as solid as the present one. Every bit as real as the present one. That God is going to create without any sin or any evil. Will there be animals in that heaven? As a uh, vet, before I was a pastor, I often got asked that. Well, the only thing I can say is that um, when Isaiah is trying to describe that new creation, he uses a renewed animal world. There doesn't seem to be any, uh, any particular problem with there being animals in that, that new creation. Indeed, in, in Romans chapter 8, um, the Apostle Paul says that the whole of God's creation is groaning and waiting for its renewal. Now, it seems uh, uh, reasonable to suppose that everything that we enjoy about this creation, in all its fullness, will somehow have its eternal uh, um, uh, uh, representation in the new heaven and the new earth. The only thing that will be absent will be all wickedness and all those who chose not to know God. Uh, that, that, That picture that the Bible describes of the solid reality of the eternal uh, of, of our eternal hope, for me, is 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 deeply exciting, and and I think sometimes in in Christian tradition we we've lost that. We think of harps and uh, and floating around on clouds or uh, little being becoming angels like uh, dear old Kylie in that uh, in that picture. One of one of the worst endings to any Christmas carol is the ending to Once in Royal David's City, which I think we're singing tonight and you'll see we've, uh, we've used a re-edit of it because the original goes like this. Um, talking of heaven, it says, Where like stars his children crowned, all in white shall wait around. How boring. Now, I'm going to be out there with the, with the snakes and the lions and, the, uh, and so on that won't bite me enjoying God's new creation. It's not like a dentist's waiting room, you know, heaven. Far, far more exciting than that. 
a supernatural creation then that God is going to achieve in the future. And then Isaiah starts uh, talking about a supernatural deliverance or a supernatural liberation in verses 10 to 16. And to understand verses 10 to 16, we need, we need to just have in mind an important bit of Israel's history. Israel once had lived in slavery in Egypt. And uh, the book of Exodus records how they were liberated from that by God's power. God had miraculously parted the Red Sea and they had marched through and then they travelled through the desert and ended up in the Promised Land. And Isaiah, in in, uh, this prophecy, has been warning them that they are going to go back into slavery once again. That all that God had achieved in that miraculous deliverance from Egypt is going to be reversed And this time they are going to be slaves to Assyria. Indeed, they are going to be scattered throughout the known world. But, he says here in chapter 11, God's deliverance is going to happen again. Verses 11 and 12. In that day the Lord will reach out his hand a second time to reclaim the remnant that is left of his people from Assyria, from Lower Egypt, from Upper Egypt, from Cush, from Elam, from Babylonia, from Hamath and from the islands of the sea. He will raise a banner for the nations and gather the exiles of Israel. He will assemble the scattered people of Judah from the four quarters of the earth. The greatest powers in the known world are not going to be able to hold them slave. Assyria and Lower Egypt are those great powers. They will return from the very farthest south point that Isaiah knew of, Upper Egypt and Cush, which was Ethiopia. They will return from the farthest east that Isaiah um, could think of, Elam and Babylonia. They will return from the farthest north, Hamath. They will return from the farthest west, even from across the sea, from the islands of the sea. God's deliverance is going to be much greater than just delivering one nation out of slavery in one place. It's going to be the gathering of his people from from all over the world. And it's going to be achieved with greater miracles too. Verse 15, The Lord will dry up the gulf of the Egyptian sea. With a scorching wind he will sweep his hand over the Euphrates river. He will break it into seven streams so that men can cross over in sandals. There will be a highway for the remnant of his people that is left from Assyria as there was for Israel when they came up from Egypt. The gulf of the Egyptian sea, a bigger water course almost certainly, though we're not absolutely certain where it was, but probably a bigger uh, stretch of water than the Red Sea. It's not going to be dried up as the NIV says. It's going to be utterly destroyed. The mighty Euphrates River, the uh, Jordan, which was, um, to be honest, at some times of the year, little more than a trickle. The Jordan had parted as they went into the Promised Land. But uh, the mighty Euphrates River, says uh, Isaiah, is going to be turned into seven streams so that people can paddle through in their sandals. And there is going to be a great highway which will bring people home to God. 
That idea, that, that image of the, of the highway or the way gets de- developed again as Isaiah goes through. So that in, uh, in, in chapter, chapter 35 it appears again for, for all the nations to travel on. It's called the way of holiness. Or in uh, Isaiah 40 verse 3, there is a, um, a voice, Isaiah announces a voice of one calling, in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Or in Isaiah 49, I will turn all my mountains into roads, my highways will be raised up, so they will come from afar, from the north, from the west, from, from the region of the Aswan, says God. All God's people then, travelling along a highway to meet God himself. Amazingly, that uh, prediction of uh, a highway of God is taken up in the New Testament. First of all, to describe John the Baptist's ministry, who is to prepare the way for the Lord. But then, uh, uh, in Jesus' Um, ministry. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. In In the Old Testament, you had rest. People got rest as they lived and dwelt in the promised land with God at their heart and worshipped in peace. That was what the the way was leading to. But now, says Jesus, You'll find that rest in me. Indeed, he says in John's Gospel, I am the way. In Acts chapter 2, again, we find uh, uh, at Pentecost, these people from all the nations hearing as as, uh, the the first disciples speak in all sorts of different languages. And then throughout the, the book of Acts, the image of The way comes up again and again. In fact, the way is following Jesus. All Christians in the book of Acts are called followers of the way. Because as they follow Jesus, they are walking that highway to him where they will find rest. Interestingly, uh, as the story of the Bible comes towards its end in the book of Revelation, we find as God's wrath, God's, God's impending judgment is getting closer and closer and closer. In chapter 16, verse 12, we find an angel that poured out his bowl on the great Euphrates River. The water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings of the east. And then in that final picture of a new Jerusalem, we find that the nations will walk by its light. The kings of the earth will bring their splendour into it. The glory and honour of the nations will be brought into the new Jerusalem. This is the way, the highway, the way of the Lord following Jesus Christ. People from every tribe and nation, miraculously delivered, not so much from political power, 
but from those spiritual forces of evil that Jesus did battle with. So that Satan can no longer accuse us. So that our sin no longer needs separate us from God. So that we can be delivered from slavery in a far more dramatic way than Israel was as she left Egypt. We can be delivered from slavery to sin and to this world to the glorious freedom of Jesus Christ. But let's not forget we can only uh, walk on that way and enjoy that supernatural deliverance. We can only look forward to that supernatural new creation that Isaiah sees if we're ready to meet the supernatural king. The one who will judge our hearts. The one who came to this earth as a little baby. But who ultimately made the way for our deliverance through his death on the cross. The one who will ask us only one question when we meet him. Did you seek forgiveness from me? The forgiveness that I won on the cross and commit yourself to following me, the way. He knows our hearts. He will not judge by what he sees. Makes little difference to him that we've turned up to a church. He will judge by what he knows. Blessed are the poor in spirit, he said. Blessed are the meek. He will judge for the poor and the needy. To them he will give hope. Perhaps for you there's something on your heart that you need to say to Christ. Perhaps it's to confess and in your heart bow before him for the thousandth time. Perhaps for you you've seen something of Jesus for the first time and you want to bow before him.
Now's the time.